person? Mm. Can they pay their taxes? Can they show right. up on time? Can they be responsible, relatable? That is that is that's the fine art. Yeah, yeah, it's it's can you have a casual conversation while you're waiting in line? And not everyone has to be an extrovert, but the idea is that Judaism is a householder tradition. It is for people mm. with families and and or at least dependents. They're people who have jobs that are mystics traditionally, almost across the board. Right. Where people with dependents who had responsibilities, they weren't monks. We don't have monks in Judaism. So <laughs> It is inherently an embodied path. It's something that requires presence and sh like literally showing up. You might be able to teach a class or, or lead a meditation, but you know your your spouse probably has a pretty good idea of who you really are. Yeah, right. and and all those kinds of things. So it's it's essentially can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we be in the world and simultaneously connecting to the to the profound and the transcendent? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever and wherever you are watching or listening. This is The Holistic Monitor, and I'm your host, Nick Sconia. The Holistic Monitor is a wellness podcast featuring life energy research, health and wellness transformation, self-improvement and empowerment, philosophy, spirituality, and now guest interviews as well. We look forward to your comments on our YouTube channel, at Holistic Monitor, and you can also listen on the go with us at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and more. And with that, let's get today's show started. Rabbi Matthew Ponak, you have written a book, The Embodied Kabbalah. And you have studied Kabbalah how long? I guess it's been about 21 years. Wow. Okay. That's a long time. Uh, this is a life pursuit for you? Yeah. Well, so far. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to the unfolding, I think, like any good student of Kabbalah should be. Right. But it seems like this is a pretty primary reason why I'm here. Right. And, and, the, and the book um, Embodied Kabbalah... Uh, I guess first off, for people that don't know what Kabbalah is, could you go briefly through its history and just a little bit about it to kind of get people up to speed? Sure. And to also name the subtitle, which is Jewish Mysticism for All People. Mm. It's uh, meant to open the doors oh. to a relatively obscure and incredibly valuable, but often misunderstood or not understood at all tradition. Yeah. Right. So there's essentially two things that people mean when they say Kabbalah. One of them is just a really broad term for Jewish spirituality. And some people trace that back to the biblical age. Moses, in that sense, practiced Kabbalah in the sense that he was someone who was getting in touch with deeper layers of reality. And that was impacting not just what he perceived, but what he felt and how he acted in the world. That, though it's very difficult to generalize entire traditions, if I had to generalize what does Jewish spirituality mean from since time immemorial, or rather since the first writings, yeah. is it's a combination of perceiving something which lies beyond our basic senses and having that 
impact us and change the way we're acting in the world towards more kindness, more compassion, more justice. The second way of understanding that term is a more technical definition is that Kabbalah is a particular style of Jewish spirituality, which was first written down in the Middle Ages. Mm. And it's a system which primarily centers itself around 10 divine emanations called sefirot in Hebrew. People call their the structure sometimes the tree of life. It's essentially a, a ladder or a, a series of gateways between our world and the infinite. Mm -hmm. This system, which it's actually unclear where it really arose from, but certainly didn't exist in writing until around the end of the 1100s. It was so popular and impactful that over the years, it's pretty much every every form of your spirituality that's come since then has been influenced by it. And people also tend to look back farther in time and, and see that maybe that kind of Kabbalah was around in the life of Moses and, and right. all of that. Now, I, in my more historical view, I think that's, uh, let's call it very interpretive or, or mm -hmm. a, a love of, of myth and all those kinds of things. But I wouldn't say there's any evidence that people in the Bible were, were using the, the tree of life and this, these 10 uh, dimensions of, of spiritual reality, which the Kabbalists described. And so that is sort of a very brief introduction to that world. And I, the system which arises from that medieval Kabbalah, people find very helpful for understanding the spiritual journey. And it gives advice and guidance and there's practices there, but it's also a very powerful categorization tool, a way of understanding the stages of a spiritual journey and the layers of reality in, in the external world and also in ourselves. Yeah, and so I and I'm most familiar with the uh, tree of life form of the Kabbalah, um, for sure, which has probably influenced lots of the 19th century mysticism, and uh, you know everything that we look at now. Because I can I can associate a lot of what I've learned in mysticism and spirituality, metaphysics, and I can connect the dots to the tree of life, the Sephiroth, and those pathways. Um, so that seems like a very influential portion. And then, of course, you can connect the dots that to that to the more ancient version of the same. Are they both designed for the same intent to kind of build? Uh, well, one is definitely for more awareness, self-knowledge, that sort of thing. Uh, do they both work on a kind of a moral end to try and, you know, build a, a better person? There's a, a general, again, general understanding within uh, Judaism that if someone uh, receives powerful visions or ecstatic unitive experiences with the divine and isn't a good person, that they're not really much of a mystic. <laughs> so at the end of the day, people are... There's not an assessment tool, you know, there's no no grades given to Jewish right. mystics, but the idea is someone who reports transcendent experiences, but doesn't follow it up with transcendent actions of love and, and all yeah. those kinds of things is there. It's not seen as ideal. Right. So that is the, yeah, not as even, 
I, I, the waste implies like, oh, send them to the dump and, you know, let's start <laughs> over again. But there's a way in All which right. I think everything is repairable. There's lots of potential. But yeah, mysticism is very powerful and, and can be used for quite the opposite of kindness in, in right. the wrong hands. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll also say just to a little bit more history there that Kabbalah in the like tree of life sense is one of many expressions Jewish spirituality has mm. come in over the ages. So we could talk about prophecy in the Bible, and that's going to be different than 2000 years ago with the early rabbis who were doing these, what you would call today astral travel through, mm. it's called Merkava mysticism or Hechalot. They're going through chambers in these visionary realms and encountering angels and, and trying to gaze at the divine throne. And that is distinct mm -hmm. from prophecy, which is hearing the voice of God and, and being a servant or an advocate for uh for god and and for justice and then we there's there's several types that have come through yeah. so my first definition was just the broad overview of the whole system and then the second one was a very specific but it's really you could categorize at least five or six different mm. very distinct movements and even that is getting very general so right the that's one of the reasons i say it's hard to generalize so i've you know learned enough history jewish history to say well, it's complicated. And if I if I boil it down, and this is really, it's for today. There's other ways yeah. I might have, you know, hundreds of years ago described this. And the, the sort of interesting piece, too, is you're talking about, or you mentioned the 19th century, let's say, esotericism, mm -hmm. occultism. And I'm assuming you're referring to people like Madame Blavatsky and uh, the Theosophical Society, um, Aleister Crowley. Right. And so starting in the 1400s in Italy, there was a Christian Kabbalah. There was one person who studied with a rabbi and he was Catholic and he wrote this giant book, which included as part of it, a form, a new form of Christian Kabbalah. And over the years that changed and developed just like Jewish Kabbalah did. And it was Christian Kabbalah that was primarily what fed into the Theosophical Society Right. in their foundations and so then they had really a form of of theosophic kabbalah and those have all again they've they've intermixed and they've changed over the years and i i think there's actually today quite a blend and mm -hmm. people are tuning into different lineages actually there's different forms uh which which arise and emerge but i for example i've you know i've read my fair share of dion fortune and mm -hmm. there is a way in which my personal journey has also been enhanced by the theosophic kabbalah Right. right, which is emerging in the 19th century, and it's it's a, it's it's a it's all it's all a journey, right, for yeah. for the the teachings themselves, and they they do change over time, and and that's I think that's beautiful and something that sometimes people don't don't realize, don't realize or don't want it to change or something like that. They want to stay more traditional, but even well, that tradition is based off of something else that was a tradition based off of something else. It's a very long kind of yeah, track. and as as soon as someone or there's it's it's a human tendency to want to grab onto something and say this is how it always is, right? And right. so, in the Jewish world, yes, but also in the Theosophical world, right. and also in the world of Christian Kabbalah, there's a sometimes people want to talk to me about how Jesus was a Kabbalist, <laughs> and I I have to be careful because. What, what do you mean by Kabbalist? Do you mean he was using the tree of life in his teachings? Because there's no evidence of that. And as far right. as we know, that system didn't exist yet. And 
Madame Blavatsky talked about how the Jews had corrupted Kabbalah and that mm. it was originally from the Greeks and the Egyptians, which as far as I can tell and as far as anyone historically can tell is a fabrication that she yeah. created or something like that because she wanted to claim it for her own. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of this is uh, there in human nature. We, we all have parts of us that want to preserve something and, and, you know, have it as it is. And when there's information that comes across the challenge is that there's a certain, you know, part of us and a certain percentage of people, let's say, who want to reject the new information. Yeah. And so right. history is, is both freeing and it can also be very challenging. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that what's really wonderful about now that I find um, the Internet has allowed a lot of open resource to um, teachings and practices and then the research that was done by somebody very obscure that in the 80s you never would have found their information ever that uh, you can look it up and go oh somebody researched this and found out that it was completely fake or whatever uh, or was based off of something completely different uh, with clear lines somebody did research and found out more information um, so that just there's a, a cleansing um, that you can do by delving deeper into a subject with the access that's available now uh, it's a light being shed on you know a lot of dark corners in the world of the of the mystics and esoteric sciences um, even what you're saying is bringing to light a lot of things that without the study without the history and without your research uh, we wouldn't know those things yeah it's it's a little bit of a double-edged sword as well because the internet is also tremendously uh <laughs> let's say talented, you know, could yeah. give it a personality maybe in this AI world. They will, it's tremendously yeah. talented at also <laughs> bringing people away from, from facts. From truth, and, right. and so it, it, it's, it's a mixed blessing, which isn't that kind of perfect, you know, for it's, the world, which there's nothing is. purely good, purely evil. It seems we're all, everything's kind of mixed. Yeah. And why should the internet be any different? But I will say also in this information age, there, are every person, has access to teachings and techniques, wisdom traditions, books that we just never had before. And so right. someone coming from a, let's say a secular perspective to start off with has, wow, this whole world to unfold, but also people who are meeting that world from a religious perspective, there are ways in which they can learn and transform and refine. The question, for example, that Jewish mysticism gets asked just by the world is what do you, what do you have enlightenment? <laughs> In Jewish yeah. mysticism, is there a final stage? And that, by and large, was not a, a question that was asked a whole lot in the past because hmm. there wasn't much contact with things like Buddhism or Hinduism. Right. And and not every mystical system has an end stage or has this right. sense of a liberation that's final. And and so there is a lot of intermixing and inter there's interspiritual dialogue. Hmm. Uh, and it's it's a very exciting time. Yeah, as much yeah. as any exciting time is also usually a challenging and to some degree scary time. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that's kind of here, here how we how we have it today. Yeah. The internet's a, a really big tool, like a hammer, and it can be used for all sorts mm -hmm. of things, <laughs> for good, for bad. You could just sit there and not do anything. Um, uh, if you use it in a good way, I feel like research and learning is definitely one of the best parts of it. But there's definitely lots of uh, uh, learning the wrong thing. You know, there's a lot of ways that I, that can go. And my comment really is to Madame Blavatsky, you know, assuming that something was based in 
a place that it wasn't. And I, and that was probably for a, a reason that she was doing that, but um, maybe she didn't know. She didn't have that connection. She didn't understand the linkage, uh, the lineage, and didn't have access to it. You know, that could be. And that, and then she writes and creates and influences a whole new movement based off of, you know, a little bit of truth and a lot of uh, idea. <laughs> and and I, I have compassion for people that don't know things, of course. Right. I mean, that's how could one teach if they didn't have compassion for people that weren't aware yeah. yet? And right. I also don't want to let her off the hook entirely because it's one thing to say this came from the Greeks and Egyptians, but it's another thing to say that the Jewish people corrupted it. Right. Well, there right, is, exactly. And we can we can take certain uh, theological elements out of Western society, mm-hmm. but there is also a tinge. People tend to be afraid of judgmental of the other. Yeah. And in Western society, Jewish people have been an other for many years. And that's sort yeah. of part of the unfolding. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I can on, on some level, I can understand why a person would want to denigrate uh, the Jewish impact on a system that they think is really compelling. But that's, I, I'm not uh, the appropriation police. I really, that's it, a very, I think that appropriation, cultural appropriation is a term that's massively overused. Yeah. And right. if, if I have a definition for it that I, I hold by, it's when someone benefits from another mm-hmm. culture's wisdom, technology, medicine, and claims it for themselves, and that original culture doesn't benefit from from what they gain. So uh, a okay. big uh, pharmaceutical company that goes into Botswana and gets uh, a very ancient form of medicine that you know grows naturally there that a, a group has cultivated for generations. This is a real story. Mm-hmm. And then that pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company makes billions of dollars off of a diet pill. And right. meanwhile, that group is becoming increasingly impoverished and there's no, there's no contract, right. but it was them who discovered it and used it. So it was like ready for, right, for the plucking. So these are the kinds of things that I, I'm more cautious about. And yes, people aren't always aware, but at some point, uh, there's a sense of what, what is, what is appropriate here? (laughs) What, what, what is ethical and moral and, and everyone makes mistakes also. And and we should be forgiving and understanding, uh, as, as reasonable human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all at different levels, different stages of development in our world and our understanding of cultures, um, so there has to, there has to be a, you know, a gentle hand as it were with that. And I think a lot of appropriation, when they say it's cultural appropriation that, uh, people freak out on a lot and, um, it should look like more like an honor that somebody wants to emulate it. If they're not making a mockery of it, then they're, they're honoring it in a sense by, uh, trying to embody it. Even if it's not something that was culturally theirs, they're trying to adopt that into their life. And, but I guess it's the way it's taken, you know, how they're... It's how it's taken, yeah. And if it. there's a... Specifically, if someone's benefiting and really stealing uh, right. something from another culture and they don't get anything, they don't get credit, they don't get any... That's where it gets a bit, let's say, yeah. more dicey. But yeah. in general, cultures benefit greatly and religions and spiritual traditions benefit greatly from sharing. Yeah. And so in, in there's lots of spiritual teachings from outside of Judaism in my book. Hmm, okay. It is, I, I have on the, in the middle of the page is a translated teaching for a mystical teaching from sometime in the last thousand years. And then surrounding it is commentary. Hmm. And some of that explains, cause 
you know, you can translate a lot of mystical teachings into English and they're not going to make any sense still yeah. because it's a symbolic language. There's a lot of key terms and references and it, it's hard to express the inexpressible. Right. So partly it's explanatory, but then I want to I want to put it beside sometimes Buddhist teachings or Sufi mm. teachings or Christian mystical teachings and and sometimes psychology because in order for something to be relevant, sometimes it needs to be really placed next to something that people are already familiar with. Yeah. It's basically like a Rosetta Stone translation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's and it it is a it is an intellectually rigorous book. Mm. Uh, it is not uh something that someone could read in a day. It is yeah. ideally actually people can read it together. There's a, a, a practice of, of Jewish study in which people actually are reading out loud and they're reflecting on it. It's it's meant to be a, a reflection tool, a, mm. a conversation starter. People can read it alone. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's very much, it's something to sink your teeth into. Mm. And that in, in many ways, that like the medium is the message, you know, the, that is, that is Torah study. That is the, the art of Jewish, the cultivation of wisdom, the Torah tradition. It is about really sinking in to the text and these are not simple often they're not right. in in I mean, even in english right to to translate is is another is another yeah. layer there yeah, right but right part well, of the idea you could is say to have that, it be in dialogue sorry go ahead you could say that it's embodying the kabbalah <laughs> yes right and so that's right. the other piece yeah. Um, if to give another definition, so what is what does embodied mean? Mm -hmm. And in the way that I'm using it, I mean a sense of groundedness, a sense of body centered, yes, but also is can a person be mystically connected, spiritually transcendent, all of those things and simultaneously be a normal person? Mm. Can they pay their taxes? Can they show right. up on time? Can they be responsible, relatable? That is, that is, that's the fine art. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, can you have a casual conversation while you're waiting in line? And not everyone has to be an extrovert, but the idea is that Judaism is a householder tradition. It is for people mm. with families and, and, or at least dependents. They're people who have jobs that are mystics traditionally, almost across the board. Right. Where people with dependents who had responsibilities, they weren't monks. We don't have monks in Judaism. So, <laughs> It is inherently an embodied path. It's something that requires presence and sh like literally showing up. You might be able to teach a class or, or lead a meditation, but you know your your spouse probably has a pretty good idea of who you really are. Yeah, right. and and all those kinds of things. So it's it's essentially can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we be in the world and simultaneously connecting to the to the profound and the transcendent? Uh huh. So it's got a pretty deep meaning just to the title itself, because my thought it was more like becoming Kabbalah or embodying. Um, and it means that, but it also really means being yourself and uh, moving towards spiritual development. Something yeah, it like means that. it means all of those things. Yeah. In the same yeah. sense that if someone has a, a blissful moment in prayer, let's say, or meditation. Mm hmm. And they realize that, to quote, quote the, the Christian Bible, right, that God is love. They realize that God is love in that moment. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful thing to realize. What a, what a transcendent, what a, it's peaceful, it's blissful, it's all of those things. The question is, 
how does that impact them? Like that's like step two. Right. <laughs> yeah, process that. Be with that. Be in, like, it. what does it mean? Because there is also a tendency. There's, and this is something I uh, stumbled in <laughs> when mm. I was younger, especially was, oh, I had this beautiful moment of some kind, and now I want another one, and then I want another one, and right. I wasn't taking time to integrate. And that's actually not only we don't get to then have that integrate into our lives as yeah. nearly as easily, but it's also that's there's actually a risk in that. There is a risky that it's like playing with fire. Mm -hmm. It's it'd be like playing with psychedelics. And I think psychedelics are another tool. Yeah, like a hammer <laughs> that yep. can be used for tremendously <laughs> transformative experiences in the right context, perhaps with a guide or a community. Yeah. And they can also lead to a psychic breakdown. Yeah. And and mystical experiences in general have that capacity, that potential. So it is that's in a sense, if we're going to embody Kabbalah, yeah, it's it's to live it. And it, it all it's all the same, right? That's, that's just mm -hmm. what you're saying to my ear is just another way of saying what I was saying. It, it yeah, but right. it all <laughs> it all just comes down to uh integration, living, and and the key part really flows throughout the book is a sense of balance mm. and well-being. Okay. So, uh, you know, give us uh, an idea then uh, on the book, um, chapter-wise, the layout, um, mm -hmm. you know, what are we looking at as far as so, the, how do we start into this? Yeah, well, I, I recommend people read the preface, which is a, my story about why I wrote the book in the first place. Mm -hmm. And a brief, brief version, I'm happy to go into more detail. The elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah. No, the no. brief version of the preface is, I burnt, I got burned severely mm. by spiritual practice when I was younger. And it took me a long time to figure out what had even happened. And when I finally learned that there's such a thing as too much spirituality, you know, yeah. that can fry someone's system. I it took me a long time then to realize that those same teachings, which I had found in this sort of transpersonal psychology world, which is a like the psychology of mysticism for anyone listening that it they it taught me about what it meant to be grounded and and kind of cautious in the path and of over time i realized that there was a whole treasure trove of those very well they didn't sound the same but a lot of the meanings were the same within judaism and it was judaism and jewish mysticism that had burned me in the first place so i was mm. i took a while off yeah and when i returned and i i studied i realized there was largely on well, some of them were untranslated, but many of them were just sort of hidden in all these different books. Hmm. And so the preface explains my journey of, well, getting burned, uh, yeah. going through a recovery process, going eventually to a Buddhist-inspired university for my master's, because that was what I really, that's where I was drawn. But then when I got there, I got this call to be a rabbi. And it was so surprising to me that it took me a number of years to follow it. Hmm. And through that process, and, and when I eventually went to rabbinical school, I discovered this, this hidden treasure. That was uh, that was right right where I'd started in the first place. So that's that's the preface. There's an introduction that lays out some of these terms I've been explaining already, and and explains how the book works. gives gives some cautions, gives some some suggestions, and then the book itself is a collection of 42 individual teachings. 42 mm -hmm. is a is an important kabbalistic number, mm -hmm. and it's also just uh, the way that the project seemed to unfold and structure itself, I have divided it into sections based on the authors or rather the teachers who other people recorded. It hmm. spans about a thousand years going back. The, the earliest text is, 
I suppose around the 1100s, and it goes all the way up to a teacher who died in the year 2000. Mm, okay. And so it's it's texts and teachings based on on authorship commentary that explains, and then there's reflection practices. There's meditations that are suggested, and then in the back there's some his, you know appendices, some historical information, and an index to search. There's every single text that's in there also is in Hebrew in the back. If there's people who want the oh. original and they, they can read Hebrew or Aramaic uh -huh. and uh, just a couple other resources in the back, the tree <laughs> of life, those kinds of things, a glossary. Right. To give people an understanding of what they're reading throughout the book. Yeah. Uh, would you say, so it sounds, it's, it's several uh, written works. Uh, maybe it's a, in a sense, it could be considered a, a new form of a more, um, I mean, 11, 1100 AD, but a up to now modern Bible of sorts, a collection of written works and spiritual understandings and practices. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I couldn't personally call it a Bible because of I mean, the, uh, no. the, 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 the <laughs> I, I can't say that. And I would caution right. you from saying, yeah, I, I did it, but yeah, just right. to say it is a, it is a compilation <laughs> and it, it is right. it mirrors a traditional Jewish style that mm, okay. the commentary, there's a, a central panel. That is yeah. how one of our major works, the Talmud, is written. That's the, Talmud, the oldest, yeah. real it's the it's the most significant early rabbinic, like the rabbis, uh, of around, let's say it was maybe finished fifteen hundred years ago, give or take, but it, okay. it contains many generations of rabbinic teachings and, and discussions. Right. And then there's other discussions that surround it. And so the pages are essentially mimicking that style. And if it's okay, I know there's a, uh, there's some of this is audio, but it's also going to be video as well. If I can show Oh yeah. Um, just on this uh, picture of a single page, just to give a sense of what it looks like. Oh, and yeah. mm -hmm. it looks mm -hmm. like that, as you can see. So in the center of that page, there is the teaching and then all around it, right? There's different forms of commentary. And if it's a new author, a new section, I, you know, about the author, right. I give a little bit of historical information and the inside margin is always explaining because again, it, this is a sim, it's a symbolic tradition. It's, right. it's actually, I would say impossible <laughs> for, for mm. someone who hasn't learned the system or isn't familiar with the references in the text to decode it without, without, uh, a type of commentary a key or a commentary and would you say yeah, that the exactly. talmud was like that as well like a surface study is all you're getting if you're not actually reading the side margins uh, too and so the talmud is a whole other uh kettle of fish because it is written the main text is almost shorthand mm. it was it was an oral tradition before it was written down okay and so it is it's it's like feels like labor sometimes yeah. there's a joy and a love that emerges but it's very difficult and so and it's in aramaic and hebrew and sometimes there's some greek words in there mm -hmm. so for someone who is let's say if someone who's trained for a while and can read it without commentary you might be able to do a few things but definitely the commentary is in many ways essential Essential. Because it's 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 shorthand. There's there's words missing. There's p things that are skipped. It's got kind of a funny syntax. You know the sentence mm -hmm. structure. The grammar can be strange. Right. So my book is far more accessible <laughs> than yeah. the Talmud, and yeah. that was that's part of the idea. Again, that people can read 
a, a translation of the Zohar, sort of the the medieval compendium of Kabbalah, mm -hmm. and it, without commentary, there even with commentary, it's very challenging. So yeah. my book is I the attempt really was to stay true to the intellectual nature of the tradition and not water it down, if you know what I'm saying, but mm -hmm. also to give access to people who really want to learn this stuff. And right. if people put in effort, I do believe they can crack the code. And mm. it's also, it's not meant to just be theoretical. Sometimes you can read mystical writings and it sounds like they're describing the cosmic realm. Yeah. And they are. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. As and above, so I, below, right? <laughs> right, yes. In general, yeah. if there's a cosmic realm or something really far out, let's say, mm. not of this world that's described, I really try to bring it back to something practical and tangible. That's part of that grounded, embodied idea, too. Right, to bring it into a, a metaphorical understanding. Or a literal kind of, understanding. Or a literal. Take yeah, the yeah, to take the metaphor the and to right. translate it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And because, yes, it's what does it mean that the uh, highest rung is is the divine will that is nothingness? <laughs> right. That and is so I, you, I could just, you know, sort of paraphrase the bunch of Kabbalistic teachings right there. Yeah. Right. What, is, what does that mean? You know, and yeah. so wow, that's grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Imagine wow. that. Okay, so there's yeah. a way I could say, well, what where does our personal manifestation, our, our actions in the world begin? Do they begin? from simple are we are we automatons or is there a sense of a will within us is can we right. will things and and how is that connected to the rest of our system what what journey does our will have to take before it comes into action mm. and right. and there are people who experience something that they can only describe as nothingness or or emptiness and so how is that similar or different to nihilism right. how is how can nothingness be beautiful or helpful or at the very least neutral <laughs> and yeah. how can nothingness be defeating and depressing that basically the same teaching could be simply oh that's a description of the, the world of god yeah. or for 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 most of us mere mortals we can we can bring it into something a bit more tangible tangible and practical especially if we are parents or we're working really hard during the day we might not have time to attain the absolute uh every day yeah yeah, and but and that's the goal is to kind of um, I know within um, within some shamanism, which would be really a tribal spiritualism, there is a practice to um, embody that as part of who you are, but not have it be like your job, if that makes sense, so that you are accessible because you're there, you're in and amongst people, but you're accessible for a wisdom. You're approachable, mm -hmm. uh, and you know you're basically a what would be very similar to what you're saying. There isn't a uh, a monk, but that is basically what that role is. Is like the monk that's also there carrying the water, chopping the wood. You know, doing I, the I hard can't labor. help myself <laughs> as a dad. I have to make this joke. They're among us. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're living within, and so exactly. Exactly. there's there's one of the teachings. In fact, so. Again, in a long, a long history, a long, an old tradition, you'll have all types. And there's, as much as I'm saying, there's no monks. There's certainly there's what one of my teachers is called. There's an ascetic urge. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which humans also, some of them want to deny their bodies. You know, yeah. if, if if you know what I'm saying, that yeah. mm -hmm. I heard someone say one time that outside of a 
an, a true ascetic religious world, one of the ways that's expressed today can could be in, in running culture. Yeah. That there are some people, and look, I'm not, I think running's amazing. I'm not a particularly great long distance runner, but I, I, I respect and almost revere some of those mm -hmm. folks. But there are, there is a way in which a certain denial of, physical needs goes yeah. into a lifestyle of a lot of a lot of long distance running. Yep. And so similarly in the in the mysticals, I don't even want to call the mystical circles because that sounds like they're just hanging out with each other. But in, in the in the older communities, let's say of the 1700s in Eastern Europe, that was a very big if we're talking about the different types of Jewish spirituality, the 1700s in Eastern mm. Europe was a really important time for Jewish mysticism. It was the beginning of the Hasidic movement. Mm -hmm. Today, people think of Hasidic movement as people dressed in a particular way, black coats and, and maybe big fur hats or big hats and those kinds of things, black hats. Yeah. And in its origins, people didn't dress like that. And it was actually a, a radical kind of rebellious, popular spirituality mm. of sorts that instead of having to spend decades learning all of the texts so you could finally learn with the Kabbalists, it was, hey, here's a transformative story and here's a little song we can sing and let's mm. dance and let's get ecstatic. And it was a very much a popular movement oh, yeah. for, for common day people. And over the generations, things change for a variety of reasons. Yeah. But you have, even in that, and it was that movement for its time was quite, you could call it body centered, that they were, they were teaching say like, if you enjoy your food deeply enough, you can connect with God, you know, and you can bring blessings into the world simply by delighting in your food. Right, right. And you also have people of those early generations of the Hasidic teachers who are spending all their time in their room studying. And there was, there was a particular figure named Abraham, the angel, mm -hmm. Avram Amalach in Hebrew, and they people would say they could like kind of go see him by the window and he would they would look at his face and he was his light was face was so radiant with light mm. that they would get scared <laughs> and people asked him to lead a community it's like no i'm too busy with my relationship with the infinite and that kind of thing yeah. and so there's contemporaries of his saying things like well if you're up on that mountain and you're not going down to intermix with the people Right. That if you're so holy that you've removed yourself beyond all negativity and you're, there's no more sinning for you and there's no more trace of evil within you, well, how are you going to relate to people? Because right. people contend with everyday urges and you've, you know, kind of removed yourself from physicality to the degree that I don't know if this is truly possible, but like, that's the way they describe it. You're no longer even tempted for anything. You're, you're not you're not even in the realm of, of sinning. And so. Basically, how are you going to be of service? And it was very important for those other teachers who had communities or at least students, cohorts they were training yeah. to say the way forward, you know, the, the the best way, they would argue, is to just to find that middle ground and be like that shamanic example you're describing. Mm -hmm. Even even though there's 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 other types out there. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of like the hermit, you know, um, yeah. but that hermit would not be shining the light down to those that are on the path below that hermit would not have a lantern out, you know, <laughs> just be hanging out in his hovel in the, on the mountaintop. Yeah. And, and as much as I'm thus far, you know, emphasizing that kind of embodiment path, the action based compassion, all of right. that, there is a part of me that really respects and admire people, admires people who seem to be sort of helping the world through consciousness. Right. If you know what I'm saying? And I, there's, yeah. this is the kind of, uh, 
it's hard to prove that this is what's going on, but there, I have a sense, you know, you meet, you meet a holy person and maybe they spend nine years in a cave or whatever. There's a way yeah. in which there's a certain sanctity there, which I do honor and appreciate, even though it's, it's not my path. And right. it's generally speaking, I think there's a very few percentage of people who are really walking that way. And, and I, yeah. I want to encourage and, and spread really these messages about uh, embodiment rela relational uh, mysticism, you could call it, and a certain just every day. Is it possible that I could have a job, you know, yeah. <laughs> that isn't related to, right. to mystical pursuits, and also <laughs> have that as part of my communal life? And then we get into questions of what is it like to have to have kids, and what is it like to have a family practice that people could tap into, but it's also not going to be alienating towards the children. There, there's. These are these are actually for me some of the richest questions. I have an mm -hmm. eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and one of the most helpful paradigms. And there's a page or two pages, I suppose, in my book. It's one teaching that spans two pages about the Jewish Sabbath, the the day of rest, but it's also a day of celebration. Mm -hmm. And it is if if we can find, I really like regular times in our lives where it's no longer about changing the world. It's not about focusing on anything negative. Actually, it's a celebration of all we have. And in a community, the kids can play while, while, the, while the parents sit around the table with guests and, and sing songs and eat, eat food. And there's a restfulness of that day. Hmm. It's actually not even about fixing ourselves anymore. That we're all, we're all imperfect vessels, right? Yeah. Right. And the idea of spiritual rest as opposed to spiritual work is spiritual hmm. work is about digging deep and what's, you know, what understanding our, our own entanglements and our constrictions and all of that. But spiritual rest is actually a full blown acceptance uh, and celebration of who we are. And if we can have that for ourselves and a celebration of the world. And again, our bodies might not feel it. So we we eat good food <laughs> during that time <laughs> right, and we rest. Right. And even traditionally, there's Couples are having sex. That is like yeah. really emphasized in the tradition. Hmm. Uh, it, that, that's not ascetic, if you know what I'm saying. Right. It's no. very body-based. It's holistic. And so it's interspersing those times. And, and kids love to hang out with other kids, you know, have some guests over. Kids yeah. go, they play or they eat the food, but it's like a joyful time for them. And then parents can can engage and, and find that transcendence. And one of the, my favorite ways is uh, through song. Hmm. Okay. And it's, and it's very community-based. Now, does that form of practice, that's like an everyday, it's the everyday practice, um, does that source back to the ancient times, to, you know, way, way back? It seems like which, that Which embodies, elements that I, I just described? Well, the community orientation to say um, the, the approachability the everyday use of mm -hmm. uh, digging deeper and self-discovery, but also that day of rest, which sounds so very that, that uh, does Abraham go back. Abrahamic, you know. Oh, yeah. Day I of mean, rest the and... Shabbat, the Sabbath is, we actually, you know, there's not much That's specific Saturday, information right? given back. Yeah, it's a Saturday, Saturday. but it's the, the what I just described. There's, again, like the spirituality changes over the years, so do the practices and, and the rituals. So, Right. Shabbat is found. Yeah. I mean, it's the first chapter of the whole Hebrew Bible, right? In the beginning. Yeah. And then there's the sixth day and the seventh day God rests. So it, it goes back a fair, a fair yeah. amount of time. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say what exactly it first emerged. But in a, in a temple based culture back 
thousands of years ago, the, the Israelite temple and the, the Judean temple, it was uh, also a day of literally bringing offerings, special offerings on the Sabbath. And, and there was a way in which like, we don't do that anymore, but right. we have special prayers uh, traditionally. And But the idea, the communal element, and it, it, it took me a while to uh, realize and, and appreciate this part of it because I, I'm very much... As much as I'm a rabbi and I, I teach religion, I feel like a, quite a secular spiritual practitioner in many ways. Hmm. That my basis from which I approach the world is not filtered through the Bible or through Jewish teachings. It's filtered through my values, these modern values, Western values that I grew up on. And right. so that's a very individualistic Mm-hmm. culture. And that's a very individual path. And so I was really attracted to things like Buddhism or or certain expressions of new age that had to do with personal enlightenment. And I just saw right. that as spirituality itself. And the way I came to understand it, again, that's a question that maybe Judaism hasn't been asked as much over the generations is, well, how individualistic is this path? That's the kind mm-hmm. of thing that it might have had to encounter modern Western psychology and Eastern religions to some degree Yeah, um, to answer. So the answer that I've come to is that, you know, in one of the terms that's used for Buddhist, different Buddhist lineages, they're vehicles. Mm. So there's the diamond vehicle. Yeah. And there's the, uh, the the greater vehicle, the lesser vehicle. I don't know right. if people who are Theravadan like to be called the lesser vehicle so much, but just to say they're vehicles. And we, if I think about a vehicle, I think about a car or a motorcycle, maybe a bike. Mm-hmm. But in that sense, Judaism is a caravan. It is a it is a whole group of people, and the only way to travel Judaism, and it is it's not an individual. Yeah, you can do. There's lots of things in the book, for example, that someone could just utilize on their own. But the true expression of so much of this is a, is as a community, and that is also in our era both deeply needed because there's I mean there's so much loneliness out there, you know, in yeah. in our cities, uh, and and it, it's deeply needed, but it's also it's a challenge, and so. As I'm going, you know, since writing my book, and for many years I've I've thought of what is what would it look like to offer Shabbat, uh, that practice of Sabbath, uh, to to a, a non-Jewish, you know, setting and and to the world more broadly. And what it comes down to is it's possible to do. I, I've sort of uh, innovated with you know my wife this sort of practice we call Oasis time, mm-hmm. and it it's like Shabbat, but it's it's more universal it's it's less sort of hebrew for example and it's yeah. more practical uh and it can be done any day of the week and not just a saturday it can be done on a sunday and and those kinds of things that what that requires then is a is a collective who are who are practicing and so in where i live in victoria british columbia hmm. i don't know how it's all going to unfold but i've got sort of receiving some inner and outer murmurings around what would it look like to have a a wider circle of, of Oasis time practitioners in a neighborhood, a community, even a whole city. Uh, mm. There's, it's a challenge. If you know what I'm saying, it's that it's easier to, to get an app, you know, and, and meditate. Yeah. And that's yeah. like, that's like, what a wonderful thing. Buddhism has right. like, wow, the fact that mindfulness is everywhere right now, what a success. Yeah. And, right. and there's like another, there's another stage here. I feel like a community, if it's possible, they have that in Buddhism too. It's called a Sangha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that right. it's, it is, it is really seen as a wonderfully helpful spiritual technology, a community. Yeah. Uh, and so what, what does that look like? How, how do those form and how, how can I help bring that into the world some more? Yeah. Is the idea with a, an oasis 
that uh, you get there when you get there and you bring what you have with you and then you celebrate the fact that there's you know water in the desert that sort of thing it's not yeah, so that... it's not so beholden to a specific this is the way it's done it's whatever you got with you that's how we yeah, do yeah and yes it it's not i mean someone doesn't have to let's say adopt a religion <laughs> to, right, to practice right. it conform and, to the oasis and yeah. and that in a lot of ways our world can sometimes feel like we're in a wilderness you know and that it's it's work to go through the desert Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a a way of punctuating that that desert work with like that, yeah. with good times and good feelings and and good friends yeah and good company that's someone asked me recently uh, I was doing an interview with actually a Theosophical Society mm-hmm. and someone said well hold on a second you know Rabbi or maybe call me Matthew that I don't I don't you know I don't always get along with my family so what am I supposed to do there and I said if you're looking for oasis time it really should be with people you love being around, right? And yeah. he, he was older. I don't think he had like little kids living with him at home or whatever, but he's saying that we, right. people don't always get along with their relatives. It doesn't have to be relatives, right? That there's ways in which as, you know, as parents, the, the, the kids in the home, there's a like, how can we create something where the most number of people benefit? And I think it's great yeah. to also hire childcare for right. part of that too. <laughs> can we give ourselves a rest? And Right, right. Because that's that, part of yeah, the raising of kids. That's also a, a job. That's that can a lot be of work. work. I mean, yeah. it often is, yeah. And especially the nuclear family is sort yeah. of the uh, the last hope, <laughs> right? Yeah. But a, a lot of our ancestors, broadly speaking, were not nuclear families. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a relatively kind of strange unit, and is only possible because of the degree of societal wealth and access to resources we have. We yeah. actually part of what created these larger structures was a need to rely on each other. And our, I know there's a lot of people who don't experience wealth every day, and I I, I don't mean this is sort of like a, a forgetting of their situation. I guess what I'm saying is the average home, the fact that we have our own little structures and that we can turn on the faucet and get an automatic hot springs waterfall we call right. a shower yeah. every day, like those, like they're you know modern medicine, food, relative food security in the West, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to again, not to denigrate anyone who's not experiencing these things, but those things are are they're also a mixed blessing because they've caused us to be more separate from one another because yeah. our sense of reliance isn't as isn't as imminent. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a step above the ground that we're you know on basically. So it's a separation. Um, fabrication, and it's not really reality. It is reality, but it's a uh, it's a composed reality that um, isn't very real. When you you know go anywhere else in the world, if you landed on an island and you know oasis yeah. of that sort, you're like, hey, here we are. Okay, where's the running water? You know. So that's what for I think for for myself, and I I think for a lot of people during COVID, there is this sense of mm-hmm. at the beginning. I remember those first few weeks. Yeah. And it was this great unknowns. And it was this feeling like everything, this sense of security that I had had for the first 34 years of my life right. are to some degree were an illusion. It was it was there, but it was always able to be taken away. I just never experienced that level of unsurety yeah. and the possible what was going to happen to our world and all of that, that it, there is a, an illusion we sort of carry around with all of it. Oh, yeah. The just to to go back a moment about sort of the the flexibility of oasis time so my experience teaching things like this so far and i've been doing it for a few years now is that most people i have taught and i've taught some 
spiritual teachers, right? These are people who have lots of experience. They're, they're yoga instructors. They're what have you, uh, counselors. Most people want to learn a system that most people don't want to innovate until they've adopted and ingested. And that was actually surprising to me when I first started teaching because mm -hmm. I really wanted everyone to make it their own. And they were like, no, 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 no. How do we do this? And so what, I, I, uh, what I've offered and what I offer more and more, and this is sort of like a new a trajectory for me. It's, not, it's new in the amount that I'm emphasizing. And I'm feeling very called to this yeah. work of a broader oasis uh, mm -hmm. teaching is that there's methodology. There's, there's a, you know what a lot of people, and I didn't realize until I really started practicing Shabbat or getting, getting relating to it when I was uh, a teenager and, and even older than that is that to really do it, it takes some preparation that actually, if I want to give myself a wonderful day off and I'm not flying to club med somewhere, mm -hmm. the way I do that is I pre-cook my food. Yeah. And I'm not like, there's nothing forbidden for me. Like there's some traditional Jewish practitioners who don't want to cook food. And that's, you know, they see that as a prohibition from the tradition. Right. Fine. I don't see it as a prohibition, but I can tell you the more I cook, the worse I feel personally. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I have crock pots or I, you know, I make, I even sometimes pre-make pancakes that I can just heat up in the microwave. And there is something delightful. It feels like I'm yeah. being served. Right. And right. so or a clean house. You know, yeah. as much as we can, right? There's everyone's got their own degree of that, but for me, I feel so much more mentally well yeah. when I have a clean house. So I usually, when I do it at, at, with my family, my wife will take the kids out for a few hours. They'll go hang out with people. They'll go wherever they're going on some adventure or grocery shopping. Who knows? And I'll clean the house. You know, if it's if it's not clean, and I'll I'll do a lot of cooking, and then we can kind of settle in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's part of that process. And in the same way, it would be very hard to invent mindfulness meditation for oneself that we draw on right as much as there's right. science around it and all that it comes from largely a buddhist lineage right, right similarly if people want to do oasis time i recommend that they engage with jewish wisdom teachers because this is really a cultivated thought out method and it's i've adapted it and universalized it if you will but it's not something it's hard actually to to just create mm. from scratch and yeah. i if i hadn't encountered all of these these teachings and these practices i i'd be i'd be quite lost in it myself too yeah and i think you touched on that i had something very similar uh when i was beginning my path of discovery i was uh getting an overflow uh you know my cup was flowing over with with all these different ideas and there wasn't somebody for me to go so where do i go to next what's the first step how should i approach this um, what should I start to do? Um, you know, and there, and it became very overwhelming and, and I definitely had to work my way out of what I dug myself into just by, just by reading, just by trying to absorb, uh, different sources and access different, uh, um, you know, latent talents in myself, but mm. not doing it with proper guidance or a, you know, walking up the, the ladder rung by rung. And, um, so that that idea is seems really important and something that I definitely try to push on this show is that uh, especially because I'm interviewing people that do this kind of work is to say if you have any kind of stumbling block ask for help you know find oh, somebody absolutely. that's going to has been there done that and has an idea as to the proper protocol because there's no re there's no reason not to <laughs> you know definitely and and just you know if there's 
people listening right now saying, I wish I had a guide or I wish I had a mentor just to let people know I, I work one-on-one -on -one with students yeah. and of any background. And I, my approach is to, it's very student centered. Like where, where are you at? Like, what are your questions? And let's, let's find ways to help, help you if, with what you're working through and, and take you to the, to the next phase of your own development that uh, at the end of the day, I think a spiritual guide should be a servant of people's higher selves right? <laughs> and, and right. helping the, a, a person become who they are uh, more fully. So I, I do that, you know, partly with teachings from Kabbalah, like we've been talking about, but also I do a lot of body centered, uh, introspective guidance, sort of a somatic, we haven't really talked yeah. as much about that yet, but there's a way mm -hmm. in which the body itself can be this tremendously helpful tool yeah. for understanding our inner world. That anyone who knows the experience of having a, a knot in their stomach or a tightness in their chest or even an expansive feeling in their chest, that's actually an invitation yeah. to self-knowledge. And if we learn how to speak the language of the body, there's a lot that, that it wants to tell us, <laughs> it turns right. out. Yeah, it's 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 uh you know I sometimes when I'm talking about it to someone I we're like it's like we're in a soup, and you know there you make it's not like a pool because it's too big but we're we're in a soup and if you move part of it 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 actually pushes into you and you can feel it, um, but you may not be aware of it that sense might not be developed so you may not know that there's this movement towards you that's happening um, that sense yeah. can be developed. Um, all Absolutely. those senses can be developed. It's just that we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't out of necessity use them. So there's, that's not a lion it's, attacking us. You know what I mean? So we're not like, <laughs> it's oh. also, yeah, <laughs> you like just a general sort of our cultural, let's say resting place where our, right. our averages culturally does not, it doesn't, it doesn't promote it. that kind of introspection. And it's, but fortunately, I really, this is not something I take lightly. We, we live in an era of tremendous religious freedom. Yeah. And that's partly why we can have this conversation. It's one of the reasons why I can say openly as a rabbi that I have learned from many different non-Jewish traditions. Right. <laughs> because in the past, some of these teachers in, in the book here were people who obviously, for any sort of keen eye, they obviously had interactions or influences from outside of Judaism. Mm -hmm. It's like, where do these ideas come from if not these <laughs> other books or these other practitioners? But they couldn't say it. Right. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. because of the era. And it was an inner communal thing, but it was also the world at large. It was a very segregated, yeah. uh, risky um, kind of endeavor. And so there, there is a, a real, a deep gratitude that I have. And, and it is, there's always something wrong in the world. Yeah. And I think social media right now has reminded us <laughs> ad nauseum, all those things. And yeah, there's some things that definitely need, need working on. Don't get me wrong right. Right. Uh, in a big way. And there's a, I think there's also a lot uh, of gratitude I feel for this, for this era and the generation we're in. And we're living the dreams of our ancestors on yeah. so many levels. Yes, no doubt. Um, now I, uh, I feel like, and I know sometimes I talk to some to people and they have no reference point at all with uh, the Kabbalah. They have no idea, don't know it exists, or I'm not really sure. But to me, it felt like it was very exposed, very easy to tap into and find information about it. And like I said, it was actually, I think it was the, uh, the um, 
Zohar that I was that I was initially mm -hmm. working with that was very it was like I felt like I was reading really old world understandings of of uh, a lot <laughs> it felt very dark and very light at the same time it was a very interesting mixture but it was also in a book that I picked up somewhere and was able to read about uh, it seemed mm -hmm. very accessible to me and, and very wide open whereas a lot of these traditions uh, were initially uh, verbal and then only written down to those that could uh, would or wanted to or could study and read and write and all that mm -hmm. so it became very uh, hidden you know esoteric as it were uh, maybe on purpose and maybe it was just maybe that's oh some of it was definitely of it. on purpose <laughs> yeah but I feel like and what you're doing is also very so so my my thought is that it was very accessible but also didn't have any guidance there wasn't really a lot of like well who do i talk to about this kind mm -hmm. of information um what you're doing is it very similar to that where you're saying like look here's you know here it is here's the info and with some practical steps to kind of you know embody the work to try and live that work mm -hmm. um yeah Yes. And I teach classes on this, right? Literally yeah. right now. I, I'm not sure when this is airing, but uh, you know, we're here at the beginning of May, we're speaking and I'm actively right now teaching a class yeah. on embodied Kabbalah. And we're, it's in, you know, eight, eight sessions and we're going through particular teachings, you know, ranging from, you know, personal spiritual freedom to ways of kind of getting out of uh, anxiety so that we can kind of go mm. a little bit deeper. And one of the texts, one of my favorites, it's telling a joke. It's a story of a teacher who says we should tell a joke at the beginning of the class so people can relax, yeah. so we can go deeper with the material. And then, you know, body-centered spirituality. And we're going to go into some of the, what are the risks involved in mysticism and how do we stay grounded and on all those kinds of things. So I, yes, it is both very much uh, an accessible book, but I'm also available as a teacher or a, a speaker. I, you know, I do, you know, scholar in residence type things. I, mm -hmm. I'm developing corporate workshop right mm -hmm. now and the the idea is it's all all of those things i want to be a teacher for people and i, I yes i'm an author but i'm very much you know an extrovert as yeah. you could probably tell and yeah. i i really love interacting and, and being a, an in-person or an online teacher and so these are these are all ways in which i'm wanting to wanting to help and if, if it's all right i, I want to share uh, a teaching that if something actually you mentioned uh you know a few minutes ago uh this this experience of overwhelm you mm. you said and mm. there's it's what it's well on some level i need to be you know people people say oh, i have all these different kids and they're all my favorite so maybe all of the texts are are my favorite but when i talk about one i it feels like my most favorite in the moment so this yeah. is my most favorite <laughs> right now is it's and this isn't it, it's a really it gives a clear example of how the mystical tradition uses symbols so this is a teaching that if I were to sum up in, in one sentence is that we should take a pause after a, a very expansive moment or experience so that we can take time to integrate before we're ready to move to the next level. Right. That's the teaching. But it's this teaching, it does not say that. It says, mm. I mean, it doesn't say that so directly. This is sort mm. of the beauty of the, like, it's, it's art in a way. Like, it's yeah. the art of how can you communicate something of value but using a, a traditional source that's sort of the also the way that 
it allows the teaching to be carried on through the generations. Because mm. it's not just it's not just a simple phrase anymore. Now it's oh, this is Torah. This is the wisdom tradition. This is so essentially Moses and the burning bush. For people who aren't familiar with that story, Moses is with his sheep. He's now, according to the Torah, I think around 80 years old, which is often forgotten. He's quite old. Uh -huh. But the people of Israel are enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Moses had kind of escaped. He's with his sheep, and he's wandering with them, and he sees this sight, this burning bush. And so there's a particular interpretation of this from one of these early Kabbalists. And he says, you know, when Moses first saw the burning bush, right, the, the traditional story is he goes and he turns aside and looks at it and God speaks to him from the burning bush and he becomes a prophet and he goes, that's the beginning yeah. of his journey to rescue the Israelites. But right. this, this mystic says, you know, he didn't think it was the burning bush. He didn't think it was anything divine. He just thought it was a strange sight. <laughs> and this in fact, it says that if Moses had thought this was God appearing, he would have walked the other way because right. it would have been frightening. And so yeah. in a sense, it's actually it's like God was sort of being accessible and being friendly. Hmm. But you could also say it's like God was flirting with Moses yeah. and he didn't come on too strong. Not too strong. If it's I'm a first bush. date. No. Yeah. If it's, <laughs> if it's a first date and yeah. we, we bear all right, that can actually. Right prevent uh, a connection. And so that's kind of what, what God is doing in that moment. And by the way, I, and I say this in the introduction of my book, I'm using the term God, but it's really how whatever people, whatever serves a person is, is fine. You could say reality. You could say this is just a myth and a legend and some story. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. The point is there's a lesson here and that's, it's the practical. I think theology, our view of the divine or whatever should serve us in, mm -hmm. in our in our action and that's that's the real measure here so if you don't like the word god we'll say spirit you know creator or whatever uh right. whatever so deep reality is one it's of my a, favorites too it's a it's a placeholder and it's, it's a placeholder yeah but i if, sometimes if it's the all or nothing then it really is sometimes, anything yeah. you want it to be <laughs> sometimes the placeholder can can come on too strong right yeah, the g word right. you know Definitely. god can be pretty there's a lot of baggage with that word so yeah yeah um so the so so spirit knows that moses isn't quite ready for that moment. So Moses sees this strange sight. There's a fire and the bush is not being consumed. How often do we see that? <laughs> Something's burning, but it's not burning up. It's just sort of staying there, right. which also, by the way, that's a great spiritual metaphor. Can we, can we tap into the fire without being consumed? Mm. Mm. So Moses approaches and then it says, there's an angel which speaks out of the fire. And that's, that's interpretive. This is sort of the commentator kind of mixing up the order of things a little bit, hmm. but, it says Moses then hears the voice of the angel and then it says his his mind or his consciousness is strengthened. And I just that's the literal translation. It's not his consciousness is mm. expanded. It's his consciousness is strengthened because guess what? It's possible to have a weak consciousness or a weak right. mind and actually not be able to handle something. And so it says that he we sort of leveled up, but he paused. There was this sense of integration. And then, mm -hmm. only then, could he hear the divine presence, the spirit, the spirit speaking, speaking to him. And again, his mind is, his consciousness is, is strengthened. And the teaching ends by saying, well, if someone is living in a dark cave and then they go out into the light of day and they, you know, and they're, they'll, they're, they might get blinded. Their eyes mm -hmm. will darken because of that. But if they have, if they go slowly, slowly, they'll be able to eventually see the light of day. Isn't it the case that our souls, our minds, our inner worlds work the same as our bodies? Right. That why should, why should we think that our soul 
is ready for the most transcendent experience ever. Like why, why would we think that? Doesn't it follow the same rules as our body? I'm not going to walk in to a gym and lift the 500 pound weight on my first day because that's going to yeah. injure me. But if I get the 10 pound weight and I let, let my muscles rest and restore and strengthen, mm -hmm. then the next time I can lift the 12 pound weights or those, that kind of thing. And it's, it's, that's how the inner world works as well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's great. Yeah. Very good. Very good insight into that. And would it be possible that that uh, strengthening of the consciousness is also a, an alert uh, to firm up to um, so if you're if you're just wandering around tending to the sheep and just doing the thing you're you know drifting in mind you know you're not really doing much up here you're not doing much with your mind you're not doing much with your consciousness you're you're just doing the mundane but then you see an anomaly that uh, like you said it could have been frightening if it was perceived to be something of a high holy, right? Too much. Yeah. It could be perceived as nothing. Oh, why is that bush burning? And just, you keep going and just missed it. You missed it. Or it could be that spark, that, uh, that light that catches you when you're not looking. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you're like, Hey, wait a minute. That bush is still there. It's still burning. It's still there. I need to level up. I need to get with it. Something's happening. That, in fact, Something magical. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I love that you're sharing that. There's a, a what's called a midrash. It's like a, a rabbinic teaching that isn't in the literal text, but it's it's sort of on some level one form of midrash is like fan fiction. Hmm. Yeah, where the, <laughs> the early rabbis are saying, well, so there's a story about Abraham and why was he the one who's chosen by the divine to be this messenger and that this this father or grandfather really of this whole lineage like why abraham that right. he he becomes this like he is i mean the term really is patriarch that that term doesn't sound quite as neutral as it used to yeah, <laughs> the, the right. patriarchs yeah these but the ancestors yeah. he is the kind of lineage holder the lineage starter the seed of that whole all the abrahamic faiths but in judaism yeah. you know we trace ourselves back so why Abraham? So the, the Midrash, the uh, the fan fiction that early rabbis tell is that <laughs> Abraham was like someone who was walking by on a path and there was a burning house mm. that was next to that path. And people had been passing by that burning house for years mm. and nobody seemed to notice. And <laughs> Abraham looked over and said, whoa, there's a house on fire. Yeah, and that's sort of the, the metaphor for the world is on fire. There's something uh, broken or, or there's something misaligned. And some people notice it and some people don't. And right. sometimes the same person a few years apart <laughs> will notice it, right, when they wouldn't have before. I really think everyone yeah. has the potential to have that Abraham moment, that mm -hmm. just that even when when God says to Abraham, you know, go, go forth from your home. And it's like, I can't remember the whole exact verse, but it's something like from your father's home and from yeah. your land. And and one of the interpretations I love is that there is a moment where we can realize who we were raised to be and how mm -hmm. our, let's say, multi-generational trauma perhaps informed how we should be. Yeah. And when we actually can have that moment of self-awareness, I mean, that's that's that Abraham moment. That's the beginning of a journey right there. Right. And it's also taking a leap because that, that message is saying, go, 
you know, mm-hmm. and it's much like, and you see that throughout um, the old, the old stories is that somebody's doing something that doesn't make sense to culture, doesn't make sense to the society that they're in. Uh, Noah with the flood, like build this thing. It's like what? Everybody else is like, what are you doing? You know what's going? Well, what? The, the, yeah, the crazy? end of that verse with Abraham is go to a land that I will show you. Yeah, like good luck. <laughs> it's like trust me, you're gonna yeah. see the land eventually, and that's that's when we get into this concept, which again has many meanings in English. This concept of faith. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, you study enough of anything, you realize there's so many ways of understanding it and interpreting it. But that again, the general theme, or at least the one I, that I think is quite broadly what's meant in Judaism when we say the word faith in Hebrew, emuna, it's mm. not a belief in God's existence. But it would be as though you said to someone, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. You don't mean that you're asserting that they are real. You mean you have right. you trust in them. You you right. believe that, you know. And so faith in that sense is when we when we don't know where we're going, it's a trust that we're walking down the right path and that mm. what we need will be revealed to us at the right time. Yeah, that's great. And and that is the faith that you need to have when you're walking along that path. Yeah. Road, you know. Yeah. There will absolutely. be food at the end of this trail, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. whatever you yeah. need will be provided. So um, I, I'm uh, in in the summertime. I'm doing uh, something uh, called Welcome Home. It's it's a course, an online course that ends in an in person retreat on mm-hmm. Vancouver Island. People oh. are from from all around are, are invited, but it's this idea of what what does it mean to come home, to mm. to come home to our bodies or to come home to a tradition, or there's a sense, there's, I think it's, it was Macklemore I've seen on her, and I don't know when the interview's from, but it's come up on my feed a lot, yeah. where someone is challenging him and saying, well, you know, what do you say to people who say that you're a guest in hip hop, right? Macklemore is white, mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. he's in this rap world, and he says, that that's true. Great, great response, very humble. I was, I'm just, from what I've seen, very impressed by his, he seems like a wise person. Yeah. And he says, I am a guest. And I'm very happy to have been invited here, but I know I'm a guest, yeah? <laughs> and so it's like almost Macklemore, where, where's home? You know, and, and some people, they want to be guests and everyone benefits from hosting, I think. You know, good guests, right. it's like really enriches a household, but what does it mean to come home? So there's one of my favorite Hasidic stories has this, the theme of home, but also the theme of trust in mm-hmm. it. And uh, with your permission, I'd like to just share it. Please, just, it's yeah. like a short story. So mm-hmm. there's this peddler uh, who lives in, Prague, you know, this is a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, and he's selling, you know, his wares, pots and pans during the day, and he doesn't have a lot of money, you know, his shoes are kind of worn out, and he lives this in this old rickety home, this kind of stone wall, and the door is, you know, very on its hinges, and it's just, he's not, he's not a wealthy man, and one night he goes to bed, and he, he just says, you know, dear God, if I could have just a little bit of money for my, you know, for my later years, I'm not always going to be able to walk all day. And that night he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees the city of Vienna and there's this palace. And next to this palace, there's a bridge. And underneath the bridge, he sees this pot of gold, this beautiful shining pot of gold. And it's one of those dreams where it's just so aware. This is in his dream. It's an important dream. This is something happening here. And he wakes up and he says, wow, never had a dream like that before. But, you know, okay, dreams come and they go. I'm going to. So he goes about his day and he has another day of peddling his wares, makes a few, whatever the currency was in Prague yeah. in the 1700s. <laughs> and he 
He goes to bed a second night, and, and that second night he has the exact same dream. A palace mm. in Vienna, a bridge, a pot of gold, and it's really vivid. And he wakes up and says, all right, my, my grandmother told me to, to wait for three signs. Okay, two nights in a row. That's amazing, but come on. I'm, I'm practicing grounded spirituality here. I can't just go off on a whim to Vienna. And so as it happens, the third night, he has the exact same dream. Palace, bridge, pot of gold, Vienna. He wakes up. He says, that's it. I'm going to Vienna. And he, you know, he gets on his backpack and he, he walks because mm. he's a walker. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's three days away. He arrives. And he's walking through Vienna and he sees this palace. He's never been there before, but he just, wow, like here we are. And he, and he gets there and he sees the bridge. And of course, there's a gate because it's a palace. And he's standing on the edge and he's looking, where is this pot of gold? <laughs> and a guard comes up to him. Hmm. And this guard says, can I help you? <laughs> and this peddler was honest and he said, you know, this sounds kind of crazy, but I had these dreams. And in my dream, it was this palace and there was a bridge and a pot of gold and the guard starts laughing at him. And he said, oh, you, you fool. You know, who follows their dreams? Come on. I mean, if I was following my dreams, I'd be walking to Prague right now. I mean, just last night I had this dream that under the kitchen, buried in this oh. old rickety stone wall, you know, doors hanging on its hinges, town, home in, in Prague, that there was a pot of gold underneath the kitchen can you believe it <laughs> and the peddler says thank you sir and yeah. <laughs> puts his backpack back on and runs back to prague it only takes him two days this time mm -hmm. and he gets there and he goes back inside his own home where he had started from in the first place and he gets out a shovel and he starts digging into the tiles of his floor and and lo and behold underneath the kitchen right where he had started from his own home he finds this pot of gold mm-hmm yeah, that's great. <laughs> All those dreams. And when you get where you think you're supposed to be, keep listening. <laughs> yeah. And, and we never know where it's guiding us. And, and right. sometimes we really have to leave home in order yeah. to find it. We actually yeah. have to go out. And there's something that we need out there that isn't at home. And maybe maybe it's really we're going to be guided back to rediscovering the treasure that we had right under our feet the whole time but the only way to find it is is to go out there and to trust in that process yeah that's great yeah good lesson definitely and and then that process of coming home of course he can find himself in contentment he got what he wanted he had to go on a journey but um he got his his wish or his prayer was answered yeah with little effort <laughs> absolutely right yeah, it does take a little effort, effort. this yeah. this world is is we have to work sometimes yeah to, to get there and i <laughs> i think a lot about i i hear, remember so i went to a buddhist university naropa in in colorado hmm. and i heard a lot of stories about you know the dalai lama who meets people at, you know and at some point i think relatively early on in his sort of really public teaching career saying you know you should probably go back to your own tradition yeah like hmm. you gain things here, but I don't want to make you a Buddhist. Maybe you should go and you should find this in Christianity. And in many ways, that's what I had to do. I left my tradition for mm. some number of years and I explored and, and benefited from all these other systems. And then there was this real sense of homecoming and of finding the treasure that was that was waiting that I actually couldn't yeah. access yet because that's I didn't perfect. have the, the resources and the translation skills and all of that. But I think there's a human need 
that we all have on some level to connect with our ancestry. Right. And to feel grounded and, in that. Yeah. yeah, there's something there mm -hmm. for us. Uh, even and and I I think about all the ways in which people get separated from their ancestry, all the good reasons, mind you, and all the abuse that can happen, or all right. of just the really like misguided uh, teaching or or money asking or or manipulation and power dynamics. Yes, that's all. All of that can happen, and I I sort of I hope for people that they can find you know connections with with where their where their ancestors came from and and partly we can be inspired from other paths but there's a way in which there's a coming home i think people have a capacity to experience uh in in a lineage that their ancestors shared because there's a genetic component to spiritual orientations right that's you know uh electrical it's in the dna and it's uh you know something that can be really harnessed um grasping onto those traditions. I think it's very, very powerful. Um, but in the same sense, now with this book that you've written, this is a departure from traditional, or as it would you say, it's uh, a joining to the traditional methods and means I would, of study. I would say that Judaism is both a tradition and an innovation or a series of innovations. Right, and, right. and I, if it's a spectrum, yeah, I'm on the sort of innovative wing <laughs> and there is something that's happened with some of the biggest innovators in Jewish tradition is that they've had their books burned yeah. by other Jewish, you know, right. and, and that on some, I'm not asking for that, but like <laughs> there's ways in which the traditionalists are going to reject things and the yeah. innovators are going to embrace it. But some of them, my heroes in my own tradition and history have been very controversial in their era mm -hmm. and then have become mainstream in the coming generations. And that's, I'm very inspired by that. And I, I feel like on some level, I'm in the universality, especially, or the way that I'm really, there's a lot of this body-centered spirituality that's kind of more in the psychological realm or in the meditative realm that's not explicitly in the Kabbalistic. Some of the practices, it's a syncretism. It's a new creation. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 a, an innovation. It's a revolution. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. all those kinds of things. And I I see that also very much as though as an expression of the Jewish creativity, which I have found in my own lineage as I've looked back, that right. one of the great uh, successes of the way that people interpret the Bible and interpret the the, teach the other teachings is that they sometimes it can make it sound like it's always been this way, but that's almost a cleverness right. and, and a hiding of it, right? Like the Zohar makes it sound it like does. Kabbalah has been around since time immemorial. But as far as we know, the Zohar was a huge innovation. It just mm -hmm. it just couched its teachings within this traditional language. And so in some way, I, I feel I feel aligned in that lineage of of innovators. Yeah. While also saying at the end of the day, I think Judaism always has had universal goals. And so yeah. sharing this more widely is part of that as well. And I'll I'll also just share that when I started in this very explicitly universal teaching, uh, anyone is welcome. I'll, I'll, you know, this is, it's Jewish mysticism. It's Kabbalah for all people, any background. It was surprising on some level to me that a lot of the people who were really most eager to learn from me, especially one-on-one, -on -one, were people who had some kind of Jewish ancestry hmm. and had felt left out or alienated in some way. And they were looking for a way back in and they didn't feel like they could connect with a, a community as a whole, perhaps, but they saw me as an individual. And so it often it started with these, these were very spiritually awake and developed people. It was phenomenal to meet them. And then we started learning Kabbalah and, and some of them 
quite quickly were, oh, I, you know, I've, what would it look like to go to synagogue? <laughs> what would it look like? There was a way in which they yeah. were trying to connect with their own ancestry and that the universal open wide tent was very inviting. And so that's, it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating to see the way that accidentally, you know, I found yeah. this great, great group of people. That's excellent. And, and it's accessible. Is that uh, so? And kind of what I was leaning into was that uh, there's a, seems like there was a closed off, um, like a closed door when you're trying to access these uh, mysteries. And though, though it's accessible, it's been exposed uh, for a very long time. You can access books with this information and, and et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like it is on purpose supposed to be closed off is what you're doing kind of an opening so that it's it is giving some secrets of what would be considered secrets to the greater uh world in a sense but i i'm sort of uh if, if my if my uh goal was to reveal secrets i'm a, a few decades too late yeah if you know what i'm saying that yeah. there's been people who have been doing that since before i was born in english and in some ways I have permission to do what I'm doing just because of what's preceded me. And there's right. a there's a certain historical academic, uh, let's say, perspective that I'm bringing that since people are already reading this stuff, they should probably get access to some of the history, which is often, I'm going to put this very nicely, mistold or misunderstood yeah. in some of those other writings. And right. also, this is a really, it's an empowerment project. I'm trying to, my goal as a teacher is to help people be more themselves. And I don't want to create a reliance structure in which people are reliant on me or on a particular book for, for all of their spirituality. Yeah. And so I see that in the world, there is unfortunately no shortage of Kabbalah being taught. That's very much, it's a more, let's say on the best sense, magical and the worst sense, superstitious and right. kind of, you know, do this and your problems will be solved. And I, there is a whole genre of that in the new age world. And like, yeah, God bless them. I hope, I hope they really help people. And I see how it's profitable. Yeah. Uh, the other kind of profit. Yeah. And yeah, they're, they're yeah. bringing, they're bringing a certain genre of the old world in a way that I don't think is particularly helpful. Um, right. And some, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't, but just to say, it's also that there's a sense of obligation to mm -hmm. share something that is directly more empowering and also historically based because it's, hey, it's already out there. And so, yeah, it's accessible, but it's also a, a vantage point that I'm hoping is really, has a lot of integrity. That That's a big goal here too. Yeah. Um, and to say at the end of the day, someone can read all they want, but if they haven't had a personal experience around it, they're not gonna get the secret. The secret is the experience. Yeah, right. And exactly. so it's actually impossible to relay this. now. There's a lot of reasons why our ancestors in broadly across traditions were careful with revealing things. And one of them was a fear of people going too far with them, right? Mm -hmm. Like injuring themselves psychically in ways that we've described. And so I really try with this book to, it's grounded, you know, it's supposed to it's excite, but also really promote integration. And the other thing people were worried of is people using this, these kinds of symbols and metaphors for power yeah. and power over others. And, and like at the end of the day, you know, like it's the information age, there's no shortage of people who are going to yeah. try to take advantage. And that's just sort of another human impulse, sadly. But I'm yeah, hoping that if other people can read this stuff and you, know, you don't have to kind of buy into something just because someone says, oh, here's the magic of Kabbalah. <laughs> right. Well, I read in this other book that it's actually like this, like maybe there right, can be a right. counterbalance there. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's about empowerment.
and is the yeah. big impulse why I wanted to share. Now, what would you see as the dividing line between um, power and empowerment? Oh, that's interesting. So when I, yes, these, that's a good, that's a good term to kind of get into definitionally. Mm -hmm. And I should also say, I, I have a, I need to empower myself to eat dinner very soon. And so yeah. uh, I need to, to leave this very uh, juicy yeah. conversation, but I'll, I'll say this and I'll be happy to kind of sum up yeah. together. But the piece that the way I differentiate, when I talk about power dynamics, I mean, one person having power over another. Mm. And so in that, if I was a more of a, a guru or to use a, like a traditional Hasidic term, a Rebbe versus let's say a, a teacher or a rabbi, I would have followers, people following mm -hmm. me and relying on me for their insights and, you know, feeling spiritual when they're in the right presence. And that would be the way I conducted myself. That's not, right. that's, that's power dynamics, right? Or right. even just people who use, let's say ideas to control populations. I mean, there's no shortage of that in religious history. Right. Right. And so, empowerment is you have a power within you and you might have not found it quite yet or you it might you might have found it and it overpowered you for a moment yeah so my job as a teacher is to not create a dynamic in which you need me for your spirituality but in which you can really learn how to find and trust your inner voice that's empowerment it's that you have a teacher within you and my role ideally Right. My goal as a teacher is to help you find that mm -hmm. and be able to communicate with it. Because it actually in this sort of strange twist, this maybe irony of this whole most people can't find that on their own. Most people need right. guidance. And so like I am successful if you are, uh, you know, you know who you are and you can follow that and go find other teachers and go, you know, inspire others. That's that's the empowerment piece. And that's that's in many ways the opposite of that kind of teacher student discipleship dynamic in which there's a reliance on the person maybe temporarily right but the idea is to set set people free to so they right. can spread their own wings and, and become who they are most yeah get to that first step get grounded get the guidance and then jump take the leap yeah and yeah. hopefully when you're ready <laughs> yeah well yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't jump too soon right and there's yeah. all of those but like guidance support but empowerment means coming into your own as a human being as a right. as a as a formed wise person who knows when they need to ask help but who also has that deep wellspring within okay and your book will do that it will provide I, that yes uh, my, my book is a step in that direction <laughs> i don't want to uh again i could not possibly after all we've talked about uh say simply read my book and you'll yeah, be yeah. no 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 it's, <laughs> it's a journey it takes work my book right. is a great start but if you like the book and you see teachings or teachers in there you want to connect with you want to find a guide i am available but there's there's good guides out there i would say my book is a step in that direction and it's also very much for someone who already feels empowered and feels spiritually alive yeah. and wants to learn the jewish the kabbalistic symbolic language of mm -hmm. spirituality and transformation and all of that it's a wonderful resource for connecting with ancestry or mm. just that yearning to find out about that lineage, whether you're Jewish and your ancestry or not. It's like a, a gateway into that, into that world. A first step. Yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. And, and where can they get it? Do you have a website? So yeah, I have a website. Um, at, yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, uh, my website is matthewponak.com. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-P-O-N-A-K.com. I also have embodied Kabbalah. I'm sure you'll share that in your, yeah. your resources, but just you'll to say, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, you can buy the book uh, electronically on my website or on Amazon or, or really any local bookstore pretty much seems to be able to order them in. 
And yeah. so there's, there's all the purchasing options are available on my website. Awesome. Very good. Well, I look forward to it. It seems like something that I could uh, read a page a day or something oh, yeah. like that where I could dwell yeah, on. A page the... a day for 42 days is yeah. amazing practice. Yeah. yeah. What a journey. Something and like you could also flip wild. it open and just see what, what is revealed to you. It's one of those books. It doesn't need to go in order. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. And it's deep wisdom and knowledge that you can really glean from it. Absolutely. The, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, no. And the the goal for and people, some people who've reviewed my books say I'm not I'm not trying to uh, dramatize or sell the the tradition. Yeah. It's really letting the text speak for themselves is the goal. Engaging with it. What are ideas arise in your mind while you're reading it? That's part of the practice. Like, what is there inspiration that comes? That's that's it. You know, that's it's not. I'm not trying to dress it up. It's actually I'm trying to <laughs> reveal it right. and let it speak for itself and just. See, see what's see what's arising. My, the best thing I'm, I can do here is to empower the text to speak for yeah, themselves. There you go. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a great, uh, great talk. Uh, Thank you. I could do it again for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll dig into this book and um, I'll report back. We'll yeah, sounds good. Yeah, about. please let me yeah. know. Take fantastic. a look. Fantastic. Well, enjoy dinner. And, Thank uh, you. <laughs> until next time. <laughs>